Hello and welcome everyone to the Middle East Institute at the National University of Singapore's 101 series where we offer an, in, a, a roadway into the often complicated and ever-changing world of Middle East politics. This, as some of you might know, is the second talk in the series. In the first talk, we started with the small city-states of Persian Gulf. And from there, we move on in our second talk today to much larger states with claims to old empires, as you will get to know in our lecture today. I'm very, I, my name is Amim Lutfi, and I will be the moderator for today. I am very excited to have with me two friends and two incredible scholars telling you more about the geopolitics of Russia, Turkey, and Iran. We have Dr. Serkan Yolachan, who is an assistant professor at Stanford University, the cultural anthropology department and a former fellow here at the MEI. And we also have Dr. Atif Shuja, who is a colleague here at MEI. And I will, if I could ask Atif to start off the day with his presentation. Asif, sure. the floor is yours. Uh, actually, can I just, I'm just going to add one minute. I mean, at the end of, you know, this Middle East 101 series really is about interacting and really is about your questions coming in. So at the end of the talk, if you have any questions, please send it to the MEI events team. I repeat, please send it to the MEI events team, not to me or the speakers. The events team will then line up the questions and send it to me, and then we, I can present it to the moderators. So thank you. So Asif, with that delay. Thank you so much, Amin. And uh, thank you so much, uh, Serkan, for uh, joining me in this uh, lecture. And uh, I will begin by thanking uh, MEI also for uh, organizing this uh, MEI 101 uh, lecture series. Uh, today's uh, lecture's topic is uh, geopolitical competition in the Middle East, uh, in which uh, we are looking at uh, two uh, three countries, Iran, Turkey, Russia. And we will uh, try to explore whether they are uh, allies or foes, or is there a kind of marriage of convenience amongst them? So to contextualize this lecture, uh, uh, you may uh, remember that in the first introductory lecture, uh, 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 it has been outlined that at AMEI, we take uh, Northern tier and Southern tier. The last week's lecture, we had taken up the Southern tier in the Gulf uh, countries. And uh, today uh, we are taking up this Northern tier Middle East. Uh, within which uh, we are focusing on three important uh, countries, Iran, Turkey, and of course, one non-Middle Eastern countries, uh, Russia. Iran, Turkey are uh, actually non-Arab uh, Middle East countries. So this is actually uh, the similarity between them. And uh, this is also important in understanding the, the interplay between uh, these two countries and the rest of the Middle East, specifically the Southern, Southern trade. So in today's lecture, uh, we have been targeting two objectives. The first is, of course, uh, uh, describing the post-Cold War regional outlook, because that actually plays uh, the, the background under which uh, uh, this, these interactions happen within these powers. And then we will look into the dynamics and implications of growing interplay between Iran, Turkey, and Russia. So uh, the background, as far as that is concerned, uh, we know that after the end of a Cold War, uh, there was an emergence of a Western liberal world order. A world order uh, which was primarily led by, by the United States and it was supported by its allies. Uh, it was a system uh, in which uh, some of the powers 
thought that they were left out. Of course, Russia had found a place in United Nations Security Council. China had found a place in the United Nations Security Council, but still they were sort of feeling left out. But then there were some countries who did not find any place in that particular plan position. So they allied with these countries. So Turkey and Iran and some of those countries. Then uh, under the background, we also have to look into the Gulf War that happened, which created a lot of disruption in this region. Again, the Northern Tier specifically because Iraq lies in that. Then subsequently, we are all aware of the Arab Spring, again, another disruptor, uh, then uh, which ensued uh, this conflict in Syria, Yemen, Libya. Uh, so the whole region was in turmoil. So when it happened, then some of the major powers which were relatively stable, they uh, thought of uh, looking for an opportunity to change that, that Western liberal world order of the past. So uh, in, in this, in this uh, effort, uh, then the latest event that has happened, that is US withdrawal from Afghanistan and its uh, supposed uh, fever to Asia, these are again creating some new opportunities. So we are going to see more and more of, some of that kind of cooperation amongst these countries. And just to insert one more uh, element of uh, China's rapidly increasing in roads into uh, Middle East, uh, uh, because this is also an important, in fact, a very important uh, role that China is playing in the Middle East for which we have a separate lecture at AMI. So under this background, we have to look at uh, the, the dynamics of these three countries, Iran, Turkey, and Russia. Uh, how exactly are they interacting among uh, each other and uh, what implications it has for, for the present uh, dynamics of the Middle East and what will be the future uh, shape of it because of these interactions. So uh, in order to understand, uh, we have to also look at uh, the fact because there are many other countries, why are we not looking into uh, those, those countries? Why are we uh, clubbing these uh, countries together? And I think there is a great merit in it. And uh, for that, we may have to look a bit into the past because uh, the past plays a major role in the current activities of, of these countries. And uh, uh, we must bear in mind that uh, these were all old civilizations and they all had cherished old empires. For instance, Iran, uh, we know is known for Persian empire, which lasted for about 220 years from 550 BC to 330 BC, long, long reign started by Cyrus the Great one of the largest uh, and it stretched from Europe's Balkan Peninsula to Indus Valley, long stretch, Europe and Asia. Then similarly, in case of Turkey, it was an Ottoman Empire for about 602 years from 1299 to 1922, Osman I started it. Again, one of the mightiest and longest empires. So in the, and it stretched from Middle East, Eastern Europe, North Africa, very wide expanse. Uh, similarly, Russia also had an empire for about 196 years from 1721 to 1917, started by Peter I. Third largest it was after British and Mongol empires, very huge. Again, stretching from Europe, Asia, and North Africa, you know, vast stretch. The common thread that is there uh, between all these empires is that uh, they, have, they have vast, vast, long history. And they were all stretched Europe and Asia. That's why this Eurasia, whenever we talk about these three countries, uh, this is the key, key word that will often come up, Eurasia in the geopolitics of Middle East we, uh, we, when, we, when we talk about. 
So uh, when uh, this is the past uh, baggage or lineage or asset, uh, which is there, how does it translate into their present day activities? And for that, uh, the, the crucial uh, bridge is the leader of these three countries, which is again in continuum. If you look at Iran, you have Ayatollah Khamenei, which, who has been ruling at the apex, at the level of supreme leader for 32 years, long years, long reign since 1989. Then uh, in Turkey, similarly, uh, Erdogan has been ruling for 18 years, since 2003, sometimes as prime minister, which is at the top most position, then the constitutional position has been changed, it's been made president, then at that position also, it's a long, about two decades of uh, rule, uh, rule. Then Vladimir Putin also, about 21 years, since 2000, he has been ruling Russia. So uh, these <clears throat> are the rulers <clears throat> who have this uh, uh, understanding of their history, their past empire, and the strategic culture that they have inherited. And through that, they actually formulate their policies. And uh, sometimes I would say that partly they do dream of uh, uh, creating this kind of, or replicating this kind of influence on the globe. And uh, sometimes uh, when the pragmatism uh, uh, you know, demands, uh, they also understand that it may not happen in reality, but still they pursue that kind of uh, temperament to convince their own population uh, because it's a good ideology that uh, it creates a kind of nationalism that we will create and we can again be great. So uh, this is how uh, the psychology of these uh, three countries through their leaders, uh, this uh, happens or uh, this acts on a various international platform. So uh, now looking uh, uh, at a micro level, uh, 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 the way we do in international relations, uh, we focus on the areas of convergences and the divergences. So uh, we will see uh, what is the limit of their cooperation and uh, where does the limit end, you know? So uh, one way of doing it is by pairing them together, like Iran, Turkey, then Iran, Russia, and then Turkey, Russia. Just looking, uh, taking a very uh, quick look uh, on these uh, uh, pairs. So uh, first, uh, if you look at the area of convergences and uh, we take Iran and Turkey, and you'll see that uh, they are cautious partners. And uh, uh, in case of Iran, it is Turkey more than the otherwise. And uh, Iran is Turkey's fifth largest trading partner. So uh, that is what is underplay. Iran is Turkey's second largest supplier of natural gas after Russia traditionally before sanctions. You know, <clears throat> so uh, these are the areas of convergences. Then you have Palestinian issue where they share some. Uh, sentiments and or the, on the issue of Kurdish terrorist groups also, they have some kind of cooperation. Then uh, uh, their area of divergences, if you look at it, then you will see that uh, uh, Turkey has an ambition of uh, creating an energy corridor, you know, uh, which sort of conflicts with the Iranian plan because, uh, um, because of that they have some uh, differences. They have sharp differences in, uh, uh, in the outcome of Arab Spring, how it should lead uh, to future, uh, you know, shape of Syria or, or in Iraq. Uh, then uh, the regional Shia-Sunni tensions, again, is uh, detrimental in, to Turkey's interest, which is kind of uh, a strategic ploy for, for Iran. So this is, again, a problem. Then uh, Iran's uh, Syria support to uh, various organizations. Uh, Turkish thinks that they are in, in, against Turkish territorial interest. Uh, similarly, uh, if we look at Iran and Russia, you will see that uh, they have limited cooperation and uh, it is slightly less developed than Turkey, Russia or, or Iran, Turkey. 
but uh, Russia views Iran as a potential balancer to US and Turkish influence in Central Asia and Caucasus. So uh, that is a very important factor. Russia views Iran's anti-Americanism as useful to balance US political influence because this is the crux of changing the world order, which was there, uh, you know, uh, led by the uh, US. So uh, uh, these are the factors that are in play. Then uh, uh, there, there are nuclear cooperation, there are military cooperation, uh, you know, uh, amongst these two countries. But the trade is not much because both of them are, uh, as we know, uh, uh, large producers of uh, hydrocarbon. So uh, this is mostly in the strategic uh, realm, these two countries, Iran and Russia. But then there are, again, divergences between these two countries. And uh, uh, we see the hint of it. Uh, 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 we know that Jawad Zarif's uh, uh, tape has uh, revealed, uh, but uh, those who have been keen watchers, they would understand that uh, uh, there is some difference. Uh, and why not? Because both of them are uh, one of the largest producers of the same product. So they will, of course, compete for the market, right? Uh, their understanding is uh, in the realm of uh, strategic realm uh, because of arms and all, but in economics, of course, they will compete. Uh, compete. So that is why we saw uh, in United Nations Security Council sanctions, Russia had supported those sanctions uh, 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 which uh, were imposed. Uh, Russia delayed the, the, the construction of Bushehr nuclear plant also. That was again a bone of contention between them. Uh, the sale of S-300, it was initially delayed and later uh, missile system was uh, given to uh, to Iran. Uh, again, uh, S-400, uh, Iran has been looking for, but uh, Russia has been denying it. So uh, even in strategic realm, uh, they have a lot of uh, differences also. Then uh, uh, there's a region called uh, Caspian Sea, uh, they have, where they have been trying to have competing interests. And uh, 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 then of course, the European market, uh, and that is actually linked to Jawadri's uh, tape, you know, why these are the differences. Very briefly about uh, Turkey and Russia, uh, uh, so uh, it's important that they had signed strategic partnership in 2010 and uh, uh, Turkey imports 80% energy from, from Russia, which is uh, again the crux of their relationship. And uh, Russia is Turkey's second largest trade partner of the European Union and Russia is Turkey's third biggest export market. And uh, both also have uh, investment relationship. But what are the areas of divergences? The differences between Turkey and Russia. Uh, there is one thing called uh, East-West uh, Energy Corridor uh, because uh, the dynamics, uh, uh, you know, of transportation of uh, energy uh, in that realm, uh, they do have some uh, differences. Uh, then on the regional issues, uh, Syria, Arab Spring, uh, these are uh, the re regions where they have differences. Just to summarize these uh, bilateral relations and the dynamics of it, uh, we will see that Iran, Turkey, and Russia are in most cases actually sorting out their differences then making an alliances you know uh, because we always see them uh, together and we see that okay so alliances are going on they will come in with a big bang no uh, because uh, uh, because they are having a number of differences why because they are very closely connected with their geography and uh, how are they connected uh, if you look at uh, a very small region uh, constituted by armenia azerbaijan georgia uh, and georgia, georgia. Uh, this is a uh, uh, this is the South Caucasus. So this is uh, one small area, South Caucasus, uh, which joins all the three, all the three countries. Uh, so uh, this is how they become neighbor, you know? 
So uh, they will never naturally have uh, these competing interests. And apart from that, Turkey and Iran actually share borders, some 534 kilometers of uh, a land border they, they share. Then uh, uh, you have the Caspian Sea, which uh, actually be, like, uh, acts like a border between Russia and, and, and Iran. And they, uh, that is why they have these kind of uh, competing interests. And uh, one factor, one uh, use that is uh, uh, very important to understand the whole dynamics and how it is plugged with the United States and the current uh, upheavals in the Middle East and the withdrawal sort of uh, US. There's just one statistics I think uh, we should bear in mind and that is of uh, natural gas production. Uh, where you will see uh, ten, uh, just 10 years ago, a decade ago, this was a very different statistics. Now we see that in terms of natural gas production, uh, the US is at the top. I mean, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, it was inconceivable. Russia is on the second and Iran is on the third. So you understand, uh, US doesn't need uh, gas or hydrocarbon from Middle East. And Russia and Iran are the, the greatest suppliers. So a lot of what is happening in the Middle East is the product of that. And when we look uh, on the newspapers to find out uh, uh, where uh, are those platforms or the theaters, uh, if we try to see uh, whether these three countries are cooperating or contending with each other, uh, there are two very, uh, very prominent platforms where we can see one is Syria and uh, we may be uh, you know, looking at Astana process, Nur Sultan, which is the new name of that place. Uh, where these three countries. Very interestingly, uh, Russia and Iran uh, are supporting Bashar al-Assad and Turkey is against Bashar al-Assad. Still, they are cooperating. We say Astana, we think that they're kind of making some kind of alliance. No, it is not true. They are actually trying to sort out their differences uh, through that platform. These are all matured uh, uh, powers uh, led by uh, uh, long-term rulers, and they understand that uh, it is only the conversation that will help, help them. Uh, sort out their differences. And uh, of course, recently, uh, uh, Afghanistan, I think a whole lecture would be required to talk about it, how uh, this uh, could be a theater and of course, destined to be a theater uh, for the power play between these three countries and of course, uh, China for which we have a separate uh, lecture. So uh, this is in some, uh, the, the whole uh, paradigm of uh, uh, competition or cooperation between uh, these uh, three countries and uh, in which uh, Iran uh, uh, belongs to Middle East and Turkey belongs to Middle East. So I have briefly touched uh, Iran. So now uh, my colleague Sarkhan will uh, touch upon uh, Turkey because Turkey is actually the bridge between uh, Europe and Asia. So what we call Eurasia, Turkey, amongst the five groupings in the United Nations, uh, uh, Turkey belongs to two groupings. So it plays a very prominent role. It belongs to uh, West also, it belongs to East also. And uh, that is why we have uh, our, our dear league, uh, Sarkhan, to take that. And with that, I will stop. Thank you so much, Amin. Sarkhan, could you, if you could unmute yourself. Uh, thank you, Amin. Thank you, Asif. Uh, I also want to thank uh, colleagues at MEI for their kind invitation. Uh, hello, everyone. Thanks for joining in. Uh, Asif did such a superb job setting the context for our discussion later that I can afford to focus uh, only on Turkey uh, in, for my part. And I will start with uh, the simple proposal, which is to see Turkey's 
growing geopolitical role in the, 20s, in, in the 21st century through the lens of state expansionism on the one hand and human mobility on the other. So um, that's pretty much the framework of my 10 to 15 minute presentation. For much of the 20th century, uh, the Turkish state as a new republic was busy creating a homogenous nation in the ruins of a cosmopolitan empire. So during this period, the aspirations of the state were largely limited to containing and developing the nation within clearly defined political boundaries. So what this meant is that the country remained a rather static place in terms of human movements. And uh, this nation building project, of course, was such a stark contrast to Turkey's long imperial history that uh, Asif mentioned earlier, where different populations went in and out of uh, the empire's shifting borders. So all this began to change with the fall of the Iron Curtain, which essentially opened new markets in the former communist bloc. And by that time, Turkey also had transitioned uh, from import substitution industrialization, which is um, an economic model suitable for nation state building, to export-led free market economy. So it was a favorable moment for the Turkish entrepreneurs then who found many opportunities for trade and business in the former Soviet republics, um, where the leaders of these republics were also hungry for um, business investments as they transitioned to a free market economy. An important point to bear in mind is that many of these former communist uh, countries also happen to have Turkic-speaking Muslim populations. So there was this added dimension of religious and ethnic uh, brotherhood, or at least the expectation of it among the Turkish uh, Muslim entrepreneurs anyway. So they were incredibly active and energetic. They opened schools and businesses, formed charity networks, started various cultural initiatives uh, to revive old historical ties that had been for forgotten uh, during the um, communist rule. And following in their footsteps, the Turkish state also broke free from its um, nationalist cocoon, so to speak, and cultivated economic and cultural ties with these countries. So by the end of the 1990s, um, Turkey had created a zone of influence, or we may call it uh, an economic and cultural hinterland of sorts, in the Caucasus, Central Asia, and the Balkans. These were the former um, communist uh, lands. Much of what Erdogan's government did in the past two decades was built on this infrastructure, and it extended it to far-flung parts of the world with um, overtones of Muslim activism that is now all too familiar to us. Uh, so for example, he would speak out on the Palestine and uh, Kashmir conflicts. He delivered humanitarian aid to displaced Rohingyas and uh, drought hit Somalians, for example. He reprimanded the international community for their um, apathy on these issues. 
So um, he appeared as this uh, international Muslim leader uh, who spoke truth to power, uh, as it were. And Erdogan, but, but, but his external engagements uh, were not limited to uh, Muslim activism or humanitarian issues. It also, um, they also came in the form of um, reconstruction efforts, for example, in Iraq uh, in particular, military interventions as in Syria, diplomatic presence in various crises in the region, including Libya, research missions for um, uh, finding hydrocarbons and fighting for them in the East Mediterranean, uh, infrastructure projects in the Balkans and East Africa, and uh, last but not least, widely popular TV shows that can easily become the talk of the town in countries like uh, Pakistan. I guess Dr. Lutfi can attest to that. Um, so for the, the term neo-Ottomanism has often been used as a rubric to capture this new outward facing orientation of Turkey. But the way I would like to frame it is that the Turkish state after staying put as a young republic caught in the nationalist ethos of the 20th century has finally begun to move around just like it once used to as an imperial entity. Uh, so what we have in front of us is, is a case of a state moving, uh, moving out, moving around. Turkey obviously is not an empire in the um, technical sense of the word, but when we consider the scope of the cultural and economic um, hinterland, as I said, uh, that it has been building in Eurasia and Africa, and also the way it moves resources between places, you know, depending on the changing needs for military personnel in, in one crisis, humanitarian aid in another, economic reconstruction and so forth. So what we have before us, when we consider all these is, is an entity that acts and moves like an empire. Of course, um, when a state begins to move around like that, Inadvertently or not, um, it also exposes its domestic sphere to a wider world. As the Turkish government makes uh, inroads abroad, various peoples on the receiving end of these external engagements use those very channels to come in and out of Turkey. The most well-known example is of course, the millions of Syrians who have settled in Turkey following the Syrian war, which Turkey has been heavily involved in. And more recently, just as Turkey withdrew from uh, Afghanistan, thousands of uh, Afghans escaping Taliban made their way to Turkey already. Um, and it revived the debates in the country as to the possible demographic changes uh, with growing number of refugees. It's an ongoing debate since the coming of the Syrians um, over the past decade. So as Turkey gets involved or gets implicated in the upheavals and revolutions in the wider region, peoples from these conflict zones find refuge uh, in Turkey. This has been a dynamic a pattern uh, for the last, uh, for the past decade, but maybe uh, even longer. Uh, another example would be that after Sisi's coup in uh, Egypt, hundreds and maybe thousands of dissident Egyptians affiliated with the Muslim Brotherhood settled in Istanbul. They have their own channels and 
networks and restaurants and whatnot. But these, these crisis-ridden migrations are only a part of the picture of uh, human mobility that I'm trying to emphasize here. There are more subtle and long-term migration patterns that have been changed in Turkey. For the past three decades, many Slavic and Turkic peoples from the former communist bloc have rebuilt their lives in Turkey. They have their own neighborhoods. Uh, a lot of them have blended in in other ways. Certain jobs, for example, like elderly care, are exclusively done by um, women migrants from Central Asia. Um, another vector of human mobility would be from Iran, especially in recent years, middle-class secular Iranians have made Turkey their second home. And if you ever uh, pass through the Istanbul airport, um, I suggest that you try and pause for a minute and look around yourself. You will see all these ethnicities and backgrounds uh, vividly on display. It is an international, um, I would say also cosmopolitan crowd of sorts um, that collectively represent a geography that doesn't really have a name. Uh, because it straddles Europe, Eastern Europe, uh, Central Asia, and the Middle East. And this is roughly the geography I think Asif uh, laid out in his presentation as he described the long imperial histories of uh, these three countries. Uh, so there's a, um, a, an integration uh, of sorts around the same uh, imperial geography uh, but only visible if we see it from the perspective of human mobility rather than state competition. So I wanted to emphasize that other side of the coin, which is uh, human mobility uh, next to state moving around or state expansionism. So that larger geography, writ small in the Istanbul airport, to me is not a temporary state, uh, something to be overcome or something to be a crisis uh, that with the next government will uh, go away. Um, the way I see it is that it's a snippet of what Turkey in the 21st century is going to be like, uh, which is a place of mobility. And Turkey's foreign policy, whether it's under Erdogan's leadership or um, someone else's, as well as its internal politics, will largely hinge on how well that mobility uh, will be managed. Uh, whether, whether it will be harnessed uh, uh, strategically well, or whether it will um, cause increasing fragmentation uh, within the country. Uh, yet we will, um, we will see that in, in the coming uh, decade or so, but I will uh, end it here. Thank you. Thank you so much to both Serkan Yolachan and Asif Shoja for really connecting or giving us a sense of the contemporary in rate or in light of this deep past and telling us how these deep histories continue to shape the world today. With that, I want to open the floor for question answers. As I mentioned again, if you have any questions, please send it to the MEI events team. They will then forward it to me and I will ask the two uh, esteemed speakers for the day. Uh, we have our first question in already. 
And I want to throw it to both of you. Um, you can choose maybe perhaps Farrakhan, you can start. It's from Ankur Gupta. And, and I will be rephrasing the questions a bit. So my apologies to Ankur Gupta if I sort of you know, misconstrued your question a little bit. But he's asking that, you know, these the hum, with, with human mobility, uh, a state like Turkey or Iran, they could expand their soft power within the region. But now with changes in technology, we're in a different age where power would be less with human mobility, but with things like artificial intelligence, blockchain, 5G capabilities. Are any of these three states, Turkey, Iran, or Russia, capable or sort of you know, coordinated enough to compete in this global competition alongside China and the new US for these, for these emerging technologies? Um, so do I start? I actually don't have a very long answer. Um, I see the chances for these three countries to uh, really live up to the expectations. This new era of the, uh, rapid technological advancements, um, the chances are very slim. Uh, what they do better is, uh, is in the realm of um, um, military technologies, maybe. Uh, so um, Turkey in particular uh, has been uh, on, you know, on the, in, in the spotlight for developing um, um, drone technologies uh, that have been used, that have been developed, uh, I think in the context of uh, Turkey's military interventions in Syria and Iraq. But now Turkey is an exporter of these technologies and uh, we witnessed the efficient use of uh, them in the Nagorno-Karabakh conflict, for example, in the Caucasus. Um, so that's one. And the other would be when Turkey, for example, ha has a falling out with the US, which, is, uh, which used to be its uh, primary uh, military partner. Um, now it can turn to Russia for uh, you know, alternative military technologies like the uh, missiles, uh, uh, etc. But these are in no way, um, you know, I think I think they fall short of um, developing uh, higher technologies that that uh, um, draw on blockchain technology, five G, artificial intelligence, and things like that. But maybe uh, Asif has uh, something more to say on that. Uh, sure. I mean, uh, can I? Uh, uh, Go ahead, Asif. Uh, yes. Uh, uh, thank you uh, to the questioner. Uh, uh, there are two parts. Uh, I think uh, we can deal with this question. Uh, first is, uh, of course, directly hitting uh, the cooperation between these three countries. Uh, we can see that Iran and Russia have some sort of uh, understanding in the realm of cybersecurity. They do work along uh, together. Uh, to secure uh, their infrastructure and all, because they have various other military cooperation also, and in that realm, they do cooperate. And uh, in the security realm, we know that uh, Iran has a lot of threats, especially especially from uh, the, the Israeli side. So it is always aware, and a lot of um, the implication of uh, uh, that sector that uh, we have been discussing, technological sector, we we see it's, it has a lot of relevance for Iran. 
uh, especially the nuclear sector, uh, a lot of it is guided or run by uh, technology and uh, we see what happens if they uh, lose their guards. So of course, uh, and Russia has been uh, in cooperation, even the physical assets uh, uh, with Iran. So of course they do have uh, cooperation. Uh, Turkey, we don't hear much uh, in that realm. Uh, maybe one can think that in terms of uh, international terrorism, uh, uh, because uh, all three countries are aware that uh, that is something that they have to deal with. So in that term, uh, they might be cooperating. We don't have very clear example of uh, that, but it is understood. Uh, but in that realm, I think uh, one more important uh, factor here, China, one should not miss out because the global order that we were talking about, uh, uh, China uh, has been coming in full force uh, with this technology. So uh, if China is going to have uh, understanding with Iran, a lot has been talked about this. And uh, if uh, they have been collaborating with Russia, then we can see that uh, uh, a lot of potential is there. Of course, China will be balancing its uh, uh, activities uh, with that of uh, Israel and other uh, southern tier uh, Gulf states. Uh, but of course, uh, the cooperation is huge. Uh, but uh, there is uh, one realm where I see a lot of cooperation going on that is in the se uh, sector of uh, blockchain. Uh, Iran is, uh, because we see the power of age and all those things. Uh, a, a lot of news uh, do come up about uh, blockchain activities uh, uh, that Iran has been entering into because it provides uh, uh, them sort of bypassing that function, economic problem they have been facing because of their uh, nuclear program. And uh, China also has an interest uh, uh, in this uh, because we also have been hearing that uh, in Bitcoin blockchain because they see that uh, if there's an alternative to the the, the dollar-led economy that is required, then uh, that, uh, you know, that is a place where they can uh, work together. But these are in terms of potential. So we don't have concrete evidence of that. That is the first part of question. The second part of question, the human aspect, why, what my colleague Sarkhan has talked about. I would again like to uh, emphasize uh, the importance of it because uh, we are talking about state, uh, 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 it uh, is constituted of a territory, government, uh, sovereignty, and uh, population, you know. Uh, so 25% of the state is its population. Uh, uh, the United States learned a very hard way that population does play a function. Uh, the kind of infrastructure, military technology, cyber warfare, all those gadgets that the United States had in, in Afghanistan, it missed out on the population. So maybe it was more a sociological problem than a political problem. So I think uh, in the broader framework, we should not miss out on population. And that is why what Safan has said, uh, we do see even currently a lot of, uh, um, uh, you know, uh, to and fro of population. This is going to uh, uh, do a lot of changes. And population, uh, uh, you know, a displacement or going from one place to other is not uh, just a soft part anymore. If you see in Iran, uh, the, the refugees or the displaced community that come from Afghanistan, a lot of them are employed, you know, uh, even in hard power realm. So <laughs> it's no more soft power, just uh, like they are they're refugees. They're being used because uh, there's a lot of it going on. So I will end with this. Thank you. Thank you so much for both of the questions. The questions are lining up fast. So in interest of time, I'm going to be combining some questions. I hope that it's okay with, 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 the, with our audience. Uh, I'm interested in going to add you know, three questions, one by Adhiraj Anand, 
by Gladi Fabiola and Her Excellency Ruxana Afzal. Three of them are asking questions about, you know, three, how does the rivalry and the, and the collaboration between Russia, Turkey, and Iran play out in these neighboring countries that both have? It seems like these neighboring countries have came out to be the theater in which the competition and collaboration are both tested out and the limits are seen. In specific, we have questions about three cases. One is, um, uh, one is the Armenia and Azerbaijan conflict. How did that uh, like show the fault line between the states? The states did it end up helping? Did it end up uh, improving the relationships or not? And the other question, the other area is about Afghanistan, which is very much in the news right now. And things might be a little unclear, but if you could also like take a look at that. And third is about Syria, where and specifically the question about the refugee population that has been coming into Syria. So uh, these, are, these are sort of slightly uh, diverse set of questions, but if you could answer these and take these questions in relationship to how these nearby areas often become the theater for these larger political actors. Uh, either of you could start, Asif, if you would want to start and then we can go to Sarkhan. Uh, sure, thank you so much for the question. Uh, uh, this, uh, uh, Nagorno-Karabakh, uh, the area that is, uh, the region that is contested between uh, Armenia and Azerbaijan. As I said that uh, it lies in that area, which is uh, Caucasus, you know, which is uh, the joining tissue between these three regions. So Russia, uh, Turkey and Iran. So it's their backyard, you know. And uh, so uh, that is uh, uh, something that often comes up, you know, from out of the blue. And this is not so far, you know, settled. And these three are uh, sort of, you know, trying to figure out uh, how to deal with that. Uh, that is one. The other is uh, about Afghanistan. Uh, uh, a lot can be said on that, but I'll be very uh, brief on it. Uh, uh, because uh, we see that uh, a number of countries have opted out from Afghanistan, but uh, Russia, Iran, and Turkey, uh, uh, they are staying put. Okay, in fact, we have been uh, hearing about Turkey taking up that role of uh, uh, securing uh, that uh, airport. And uh, Turkey's role is important because uh, of, uh, by virtue of its uh, membership of NATO, uh, because uh, through Turkey and of the uh, United States would very much like to do that because uh, by virtue of being a member of NATO, there will be some sort of presence to sort out maybe in future. Uh, but uh, the nature of that is not yet uh, uh, Amim knows better because Pakistan is playing a huge role uh, in that. So what exactly is happening? But uh, we see that uh, that is not yet happening. Uh, Russia is trying to figure out how exactly uh, or what exactly to do that because it has burned its finger once, uh, in fact, whole body once in Afghanistan. So it would trade carefully. I think everybody has been waiting for China's, uh, you know, stance. And uh, uh, because the whole game plan of the United States is uh, uh, because for the last 20 years, the uh, uh, United States has been playing the security uh, role and uh, it was a U.S. decision. And China, the poor guy, uh, it, it decided to reap the economic benefit out of it. Now, when uh, China has become the biggest challenger to the United States, the U.S. has woken up and it is now 
realizing that we have to check that challenge to my superpower position. So China knows this trap uh, in Afghanistan. There has one Thomas Cone, that of USSR. The second is that of US. Uh, so it is trading uh, very carefully. It has been talking to the Taliban and it has been uh, laying out very clear uh, demarcations that the moderation of uh, Taliban is important, uh, avoidance of uh, uh, territory becoming a hotbed of uh, terrorist activities uh, that is important and the inclusivity of the government. So these are the stances of uh, China. I personally don't think that China is going to uh, get militarily uh, what the way US wants it to. So uh, uh, just to uh, again focus on the question, uh, Russia, uh, Turkey and Iran have been waiting for China's move. So that would be my, uh, my, my conclusion. Now on the, the question of uh, Syria, I think uh, I have mentioned it uh, earlier also, uh, uh, Astana process, Astana process, in fact, the whole uh, paradigm of uh, the, uh, looking at these three countries together uh, was driven by, uh, in retrospect, we give a lot of explanation, including uh, myself, uh, but uh, it came in the, uh, uh, in the limelight because of that Astana process, you know, uh, when uh, Syria uh, uh, became fragmented and uh, uh, you know, uh, Russia, first Iran was supporting, then Russia came in, in, in a big way. So, but we know that uh, Turkey has a different agenda. It is not on the same page with Russia and Iran. Okay. <clears throat> and that, that is because of the Kurdish question, uh, as well as uh, the, the influence uh, in uh, that uh, region. So uh, we see that these three countries do talk a lot. Uh, they have a lot of discussions. And, uh, but they are yet to have uh, a kind of uh, long-term uh, solution. But thing here is that uh, they uh, feel twice that, okay, we are, uh, you know, sort of doing a big thing. And the United States is also letting them uh, do that because uh, now uh, we are going to, in some likelihood, have the second Syria in, in, in Afghanistan where uh, there will be different uh, influence zones and different powers will be trying to uh, play their hand. I think uh, 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 if Afghanistan is not uh, taken care of uh, carefully by its uh, own you know, rulers or uh, it's not supported properly by, by the neighbors, so uh, it, it may again become second uh, Syria. So these are all interlinked issues and uh, I'll stop there. Thank you, uh, Sir Khan. Um... So I'll try to answer this question from uh, the vantage point of the Caucasus. Um, as Asif said uh, in, the, in his presentation that these three countries are um, not necessarily converging in terms of having shared interests, but they are uh, making sure that they have platforms to sort out their differences. So Astana process is, is one example. And I think through such practices, um, the leaders of, um, or the leaderships of these uh, three countries have realized um, the value of uh, making sure that differences do not escalate to the point of uh, resulting in a conflict. So um, they make sure to keep diplomatic channels open and there is an overall collaborative atmosphere. This is very important because it really opens 
space for countries in between. And one example is really Azerbaijan. So what happened um, since 2016, uh, maybe, is that uh, Aliyev, Azerbaijan's leader, uh, for the first time, uh, began to develop very positive, uh, very solid um, economic and, and diplomatic ties with all three countries at once. So you would see Aliyev in Iran one day and then uh, Erdogan in Baku the other day and uh, Aliyev having a phone conversation with Putin, etc. So that there was this uh, traffic that was a little, I would say unthinkable, say in the early 2000s or, or the 1990s where having a strong relationship with one country uh, meant uh, that the relationship with the other country or came at the expense of uh, you know, uh, strong ties uh, with, uh, with the other neighbor. So if we look at you know, um, the, the geopolitics of the Caucasus in the 1990s, for example, it was always, it was kind of a zero sum game that the leadership of Azerbaijan had to constantly watch out uh, not to anger any of these uh, neighbors, or if, if it made too big of an investment in one, then it certainly meant that it was losing on, on the other front. Um, so it, this is a stark difference uh, from that period. Uh, and I think someone like Aliyev certainly reaped the benefits of it uh, when he started the whole um, uh, advance on, on Nagorno-Karabakh, uh, we didn't see really an Iranian or Russian intervention, which would be which would have been very likely, say, in the early 2000s or uh, in the 1990s. Of course, part of it is that uh, he relied on uh, Turkish military, uh, the newly developed Turkish military technology. Um, also, um, he draw on uh, he drew on um, his good relationship with uh, Israel. Uh, he drew on Muslim sentiments coming from unlikely places like Pakistan. Uh, so for the first time, we saw you know Israeli and Turkish and Pakistani flags next to one another, you know, in uh, in in Azerbaijan. So it really th this collaborative overall collaborative atmosphere uh, opens space for these very interesting uh, developments. So the so Azerbaijan has been a net winner uh, in the Nagorno-Karabakh uh, conflict. Um, and that I see as, uh, as almost a, a very direct result of Aliyev taking advantage of uh, what has been going on in terms of this broader rapprochement uh, among Iran, Turkey, and Russia. Thank you uh, so much. We have a few questions lined up, but uh, that, I wanna, there's a question by Celine Lowe. And it's a question again for both Sirkan and Asif. And it's asking, and she's asking about the future economic outlook for Turkey and Iran. Um, specifically, Turkey, the inflation rate, she writes in the past three to five years has been low to mid teens, but in Iran, it's even higher at around 30%. So, what does this mean for the domestic stability and also their ability to engage internationally? Uh, Sarkhan, would you start Sarkhan, with Turkey? Yeah. Turkey, then I'll take up Iran. Uh, you take up Turkey, then I'll take up Iran. Okay, uh, okay. sorry, okay. Um, I can hear that. 
it, yes, ec economy is certainly the underbelly, uh, soft underbelly of uh, both countries. I can, I guess, speak about Turkey a little bit. Um, it's almost strange that Turkey has been uh, engaged. I mean, Turkey hasn't really cut down on its external engagements with all that is going uh, on uh, in the domestic sphere, which is uh, basically uh, a sort of a long running soft economic crisis of sorts. Uh, so it's not hot, uh, but um, the, the, the pressure is very high on the government um, and they really don't have the means to manage the situation anymore. Um, and part of the reason is that Erdogan has created um, a crony capitalism of sorts, you know, drawing completely on um, uh, loyal members of, of the party and bringing them in uh, important positions. So um, there's a brain drain, uh, a lot of young talents, etc., cetera, are leaving the country. So beyond the inflation rate, there, is, there has been uh, real um, substantial problems that will uh, haunt Turkey uh, for, for the next decade. Um, yet, you know, Turkey hasn't really cut down uh, on, the, on the external engagements or the very active and aggressive foreign policy. And part of it is, and I'm gonna repeat myself, uh, part of it is about the increased mobility and, and whoever is in power has to manage that mobility. Uh, one cannot simply just withdraw uh, from these external engagements because uh, say the fight for hydrocarbons in the East Met will have a direct impact on Turkey's economic outlook. What Turkey can do in Libya or whether Libya, um, you know, develops closer ties with Greece and Israel uh, behind Turkey's back is, has a huge uh, impact on Turkey's uh, prospects uh, in the region. So no matter what happens internally, Turkey finds itself or the Turkish leadership finds uh, find themselves um, having to constantly respond and deal with uh, these external developments. And in that way, because they don't have the economic resources, they're constantly punching about their weight. Um, that is to say, they're relying on resources that are not necessarily economic all the time. And that's why I think human mobility is still central to um, and, and harnessing that mobility to, uh, for, toward you know, strategic uh, influence uh, is still key for, for these countries, uh, certainly for Turkey, but I, I imagine uh, there's the same for Russia and Iran as well. Uh, yes, thank you so much. Uh, uh, about uh, Iran, of course, when we talk about uh, Iran's economy and uh, uh, inflation and all those economic problems that the population has been facing, the Iranian uh, government or the Iranian rulers have uh, sort of concluded that it will not translate into uh, a revolution. So uh, uh, why am I saying this? Uh, because it is linked to the uh, nuclear negotiation that Iran uh, it has already had with the United States indirectly, and uh, uh, which is, it is uh, not figuring out whether to continue with that or not. So uh, that factor, uh, 
the, the streets of Iran where they will boil down, down to that. Uh, the Iranian government, Iranian rulers have concluded it will not happen. Now, it didn't happen when uh, supposedly reformist government uh, president uh, was there. So uh, now that Ibrahim Raisi is there, uh, our liner, uh, we all know about uh, him. So uh, it's even less likely. Now the cabinet uh, of uh, Ibrahim Raisi, if you see, uh, there's an important position of uh, uh, vice president of economic affairs. Uh, that sort of uh, economic minister, uh, I mean, uh, a very important uh, position for, uh, for finance and economics. Uh, so these are the position which uh, are now given to IRGC, former IRGC members. Uh, we know that uh, IRGC has played a role uh, substantially uh, in the economics of uh, Iran uh, in the past, uh, but they were playing from the uh, from the back door. Uh, now they are playing that uh, role from the front door. Now the other issue that uh, we think of uh, the economic uplift of the the country, uh, the role of oil or hydrocarbon, which of course has been sanctioned by United States, not United nations but united states so uh what you uh, iran has been doing it has been the first part was that okay this is not concluded that even if economy worsens it's not much of a deal for the regime stability the second is uh, of course iran has been trying to uh, diversify its economy like other gulf states uh, uh, of course here they have termed it resistance economy that means that making it immune uh, from uh, from the sanctions and that is why uh, the alternative uh, to dollar uh, and of course the association of iran and china in there is very very important it's uh, they're working on it uh, it may take long uh, but there's a need of that you know because uh, eventually it's because of the dollar that they are not able to sell a dollar-led global economy that they are not able to sell their oil but uh, looking at uh, the current u.s stance in the middle east uh, uh, Iran has been thinking if it defies, of course, uh, 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 this uh, if their dollar factor has been taken care of, if there's somebody trying to, some other country trying to have a, a business with Iran in non-dollar terms, then uh, would their uh, amount to uh, apprehending its uh, ships, uh, oil tankers? We see that Iran has been making a thin-pronged strategy. Uh, one thing is that uh, it has started uh, exporting oil, bypassing uh, the state of Hormuz directly from Gulf of Oman. They have experimented it, they have started it. So that is one, that in case of eventuality if the state of Hormuz is, is closed, then uh, uh, none of the Gulf states can uh, you know, uh, uh, export oil. So that will be a difficult situation for others, but Iran can export. So that is one step Iran has already taken. The other step it has taken is that it has been building its seafaring abilities, you know, uh, large giant ships, uh, 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 they have gone on long voyages uh, with the uh, modeled, uh, you know, tank they have modeled into warship and they have uh, been experimenting with that. Alongside, they have also been uh, sending or exporting oil to Venezuela and uh, Lebanon. Uh, so these are the activities, uh, some of it will uh, be long lasting, uh, like uh, changing uh, the, the point of export, that will be long lasting. Uh, uh, but uh, these uh, military aspects and uh, experimenting with these exports to check also how far US can react. And uh, equally importantly, uh, how, uh, how does, because I mean, we all know that Israel has been tracking it more than perhaps the United States. So 
uh, if uh, Israel has been uh, tracking it and it has been going with that complaint to the United States, then how far would United States uh, 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 reciprocate or act on that? Uh, as I said that uh, uh, there's just one statistics uh, which is most important, uh, and that is that US is at the number one position of hydrocarbon, then Russia, and then, and then Iran. So uh, I personally don't see very likely that uh, U.S. will come with full force to intercept. We see what happened when uh, Iran uh, tanker was uh, uh, seized by uh, Britain, and then Iran also seized a tanker, so it was quid pro quo. So a lot of uh, that things, those things also happened. This, these activities will continue if <clears throat> there are no nuclear uh, thought, break breakthrough. So that is another realm where the Iranian government has been working uh, to, of course. Uh, uh, raise stake because kind of a, actually a deal that they are going to make uh, the sort of bargain that they'll be making and uh, uh, so uh, they have been making up their mind uh, 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 how to do that uh, but they want to go there with the position of strength uh, and uh, I think uh, uh, one can assume that uh, uh, Iran uh, uh, might be coming back to the negotiation table because uh, uh, U.S. is also not having that nerve to go uh, militarily, and uh, uh, so why is it important? Because uh, if the U.S. doesn't have this uh, uh, tendency or intention, then the signal that U.S. would be sending to Iran would be according, and those would be grasped by the Iranian government. In the meantime, Iranian government has uh, done; uh, they have consolidated the the what we call regime uh, of clerics, uh, uh, the hardliners or the conservatives. Uh, so they are on a very strong footing. So uh, uh, it's again important is that uh, when uh, the ultimate decision maker Ayatollah Khamenei will have to take a decision on, on the nuclear front. Uh, uh, when a good deal uh, comes on the table, uh, he will uh, eagerly grab it. And uh, if Ibrahim Raisi grabs it means uh, for all practical purposes, it will be uh, a, a, a supreme leader Ayatollah Khamenei. So I personally don't see much of an economic problem uh, in future with Saudi Iran, but again, as the main theme is for our today's lecture. It has to be seen in the broader, broader geopolitics. Only then we can uh, conclude this. Otherwise, uh, the economic condition presently is pathetic in Iran. Uh, the COVID situation has made it more pathetic, uh, 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 but uh, it could be changed in future for better. Thank you. Thank you. We have another question. This is a more historical slash philosophical question. Uh, from Mariam al-Riyami, uh, who's asking about that, you know, we have this uh, distinguished field called post-colonial studies that looks at the after impacts of the, the Western colonial empires. But we do not have nearly anything similar called post-Ottoman studies, post-Safavid studies. Is that a result of our own ideological blinders or is this because the nature of empire was very different? The nature of rules of the, the colonial empire and the nature of rule of the Safavid and Ottoman empire was different. Uh, either, either one, Sarkhan, you want to take a jab at it first? Yes, Sarkhan, please. Uh... Okay, uh, wow, such a wonderful question. Um, this requires uh, maybe an entire hour of you know, discussion. Uh, comparing uh, the imperial experiences uh, associated with European colonialism uh, in and around the Indian Ocean 
versus uh, the imperial experiences of various populations caught up um, in Muslim and Christian empires expanding over land. So Russian, Austria-Hungarian, uh, Ottoman, Safavid. Um, I think part of the difficulty is that it, it doesn't, um, so these, these empires and the range of experiences that they encapsulated do not lend themselves uh, into easy um, and maybe black and white frameworks. Um, so you don't, it's, it's harder to identify the settler. It's harder to identify the indigenous. It's harder to identify um, a, a clear exploitative agent versus uh, a colonized population. Of course, there are you know, aspects of these uh, also present in, in, in these empires and they're in, in the literature on these empires. There have been huge discussions, for example, whether Russia could be considered a, a, a classical colonial um, empire of sorts when it comes to its uh, expansion into the Caucasus and Central Asia. I, in, to my mind, it's an unresolved debate um, because even uh, the English, uh, so if you look at the you know, writings of English travelers uh, in South Asia and Central Asia, they would often compare the thick Russian presence in Central Asia and, and, and in the Caucasus, thick by uh, what I mean by that is uh, a lot of Russians actually settling in those regions versus a very thin layer of administrative, uh, um, a, a thin administrative layer uh, of English bureaucrats say, in, in India ruling a, a huge uh, population. So there are you know, significant differences. Um, similarly, it is hard to, for example, define a metropolitan center versus uh, maybe colonial outposts when it comes to these territorial uh, empires. Yes, obviously in the Ottoman Empire, you have uh, Istanbul as the center, maybe Balkans as the economic sort of regional, uh, economic, uh, primary economic region that drives uh, the Ottoman economy at large, but there's a range of uh, techniques of government that are that coexisted uh, at the same time in you know in these empires. So maybe they are the reason. Maybe we don't have a, a theoretical canon like postcolonial theory coming out of these empires is partly because of this sort of diversity that we haven't really come to terms with. Uh, we, in the 20th century, uh, thinking along the lines of, uh, uh, or re, you know, getting caught in the ethos of, of nationalism, we quickly dismissed uh, empires as uh, evil things uh, or, uh, or imperial ambition as, as, a, as a negative thing. Uh, without even really sorting out what it is and how it works, et cetera. I think uh, historical scholarship on empires uh, are cha is changing that um, overall attitude, um, but historians are not as theoretically uh, maybe forthcoming as maybe literature people, anthropologists. So I think we will have to wait for a while to, for things to, uh, to come together a little bit. But thanks for the question, it was, it was great. Uh, 
Yeah, if I could add to that, uh, see, it's very interesting question. I was looking for if there are such literature in, in Persian or maybe if I have heard of Turkish or Soviet <clears throat> or Russian language. See, uh, I don't see they, they exist even within their own domain also, like exclusively Persian, Turkish or Russian domain. Uh, one can answer that uh, uh, if the Westerners, uh, non-Persian, nor Turkish, nor uh, uh, non-Russian, they have been talking about, uh, uh, you know, uh, post-Persian or post-Ottoman. Uh, that would amount to giving a lot of uh, emphasis, uh, you know, uh, to this. <clears throat> Again, going back to that dreamy phase of these three leaders that I had mentioned about. Now, if these three leaders or their countries themselves produce such literature, uh, then uh, as uh, we know that uh, the, the, the prefix post, when it is attached, and as Sarhan has very rightly alluded to, empire, uh, these give some uh, uh, negative connotations that, oh, there's some, something good that is over. Oh, that's not positive. Empire or maybe colonialism, uh, that is uh, not good. So uh, maybe uh, these are the two reasons that uh, we don't uh, see uh, those, those things. As far as these three countries, uh, they don't really think that it is over, you know, <laughs> in their own uh, skewed uh, imagination, it is continuing. That is why we have problems. Thank you. No, thank you. Thank you so much for the response. Now I'm going to pair two questions together. Uh, one is by Alfin Febrian Basundoro, and one is by Iman bin Muhammad Nazari. And essentially what both are asking is about the contradictions inherent in these three countries collaborating together and the contradictions that these countries always seem to be straddling. One is, of course, the, the big one is the Shia-Sunni tension, that these are the Turkey and Iran ostensibly seem to be divided by this very deep-seated uh, sectarian sentiment. So is there any hope of them coming in? And the other big contradiction is that, you know, a country like Turkey, which is at once part of NATO and, you know, like one of the foremost Muslim sort of actor within the NATO forces, but is also now trying to leverage towards this new formation of, you know, like sort of anti-US or sort of not just anti-US, sort of competing world order of some kind. So are these tensions going to lead to some kind of problem in the future? Uh, do they mean that these are temporary alliances that cannot be long-standing and they're like on weak footings to begin with? Uh, either of you can start, Asif, if you would want to start first. Uh, okay, uh, uh, yes, uh, uh, because uh, now when we see about these uh, uh, three countries together, as I have, I have said earlier also that uh, they are always found together, uh, but they are mostly sorting out their differences, you know. Uh, so uh, it's like, you know, uh, 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 some classmates going to the lunch and then they say, what have you brought? Then uh, Turkey would say, okay, I have brought NATO with me. Uh, then uh, the Iran would say, uh, what Russia has brought, Russia would say, I have brought S-300, S-400, I'll give S-300 to Iran, S-400 to, uh, to, to Turkey. Then these two people uh, will uh, say, what have you brought, Iran? The Iran would say, antagonism with the uh, with United States, uh, you know, I've been standing tough for the last 40 years. So uh, these are the virtues, the values uh, that they bring together, you know. Uh, so, uh, but again, it's like, uh, uh, again, uh, 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 whether it will continue. Uh, so it's not so much as the positives 
that have brought them together as the negatives you know uh, so uh, one can uh, uh, imagine that they had mutually exclusive you know uh, empires so what would they be building mutually exclusive uh, empires uh, we have not uh, mentioned here uh, the other two empire that uh, that uh, uh, that is of uh, british and mongol of course linked to china china civilization uh, so uh, but china is the dragon is now about to come up so uh, we will see uh, what uh, real displacements that dragon uh, does and then uh, will there be the continuity but uh, the title of this uh, 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 talk is uh, marriage and i think we can draw a lot from uh, from a marriage also when you are uh, uh, newly married uh, the husband wife uh, they have a lot of heated discussions heated talk heated arguments uh, whereas they have very uh, uh, less number of topics to uh, to discuss as they grow mature Uh, they have very calm cool soothing talks among themselves whereas they have a new issue uh, the children they have now children they have children have their friends their school their career the more issues but less heat you know so uh, that's why it's very important to think about their past you know uh, because that is what creates the strategic concern not the novior is that okay you have uh, demolished my building i will uh, bomb the whole country so that is novia bridge you know uh, it's not maturity so uh, these three countries are very mature led by uh, long term rulers so uh, and at the top of these are uh, is china uh, and now united states has been trying to uh, you know instigate uh, china so uh, we will see if the dragon has actually fire in its belly the us is experimenting if that uh, uh, fire does come up then there will be further disruptions Uh, otherwise, uh, this is actually uh, uh, interrelationship. You know, international relation is actually a relation. So uh, the the dynamics among these three countries can be understood by uh, uh, creating analogies with the uh, human relationship. Uh, thank you. Thank you, Furkan. Um, I want to be a little cautious about this idea of inherent contradictions. Um, Let's take the example of Shia-Sunni divide um, that ostensibly, you know, really separates these two countries, I- Iran and Turkey. Um, if we look at the broader history of Iran-Turkey relations, we can find enough episodes, say, in the early 16th century, where Iran was consolidating as a Shia power and Ottoman Empire was becoming increasingly Sunni, uh, partly. in competition with the Safavid threat, uh, we saw uh, a, an episode of sectarian rivalry and conflict and war. Uh, but this was mostly because these two countries were uh, actually competing for resources, for uh, lands, uh, et cetera. And they posed a threat to each other. And then uh, the theological uh, differences became partly uh, an afterthought. And we can find similar uh, episodes uh, in other uh, moments in, in history, most recently, perhaps in the uh, early 2000s when uh, Erdogan was growing, you know, it was increasingly uh, becoming confident and with the Arab Spring uh, sort of, you know, toppling governments one after another, opening the space for a lot of, uh, for Sunni majorities to, you know, finally um, 
elect their own uh, leaders in countries like Egypt and, 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 and Syria, potentially, uh, that, that, you know, that difference became uh, so accentuated that we have begun to think of it as an inherent contradiction between these two countries. But if you, you we can easily do, you know, find episodes uh, where, uh, despite this difference, there's increasing, there is um, incredible collaboration uh, that really um, sort of underplays the theological differences. One example would be the aftermath of the Islamic Revolution in Iran. Uh, this is a, you know, this was a Shia revolution, but it was also a model for um, Islamists elsewhere, including Turkey, who were, in, who were increasingly um, emboldened uh, as Turkey transitioned to a market economy, and they were also entrepreneurs at the same time, and they were greatly influenced by the philosophers and activists uh, of the Islamic revolution in Iran, and there was not much talk about uh, Shia-Sunni difference. There are a lot of Iranian mullahs uh, coming and visiting and preaching uh, in various towns, various uh, districts of Istanbul. The leaders of um, the Islamist movement, from which Erdogan came, by the way, uh, visited Iran and took Iranian Islamic revolution as a model uh, uh, for Turkey as well. Um, you know, back in the day, in the early 20th century, maybe the late 19th century, uh, when there were currents of pan-Islamism uh, sort of blowing in, in, uh, in the wider region, um, a lot of Iranian activists uh, would join in despite the um, Sunni-Shia divide. Uh, so we need to be a little cautious when it comes to, you know, uh, understanding these theological or religious differences, uh, whether they're inherent or whether they, are, they can be accentuated or underplayed. Uh, Depending on the uh, on the moment, so I guess I'll leave it that leave it at that. Uh, thank you so much. Again, it's a reminder if anybody has any questions, I think we would have some time to take a few more questions in. So send it in to the MEI events team in the chat function, and I will ask our esteemed speakers. Uh, we have one more question, and this is uh, from Mariam Al Riyami, and she's asking for some more elaboration on the asana process as an example of how the three can work out their differences. So can you, can either of you give some examples of the way in which they actually worked out difficult issues and settled a compromise solution, uh, perhaps over Syria or perhaps other otherwise? Uh, would you like to go, Sarkhan? Uh, you can start also. I can jump in after you. Okay, uh, uh, we we don't see any any breakthrough uh, in 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 uh, Syrian uh, you know dialogue that has been happening uh, uh, because uh, uh, it's been uh, highly segmented. The whole uh, territory has been highly segmented, and uh, uh, Turkey has been adamant uh, that uh, it will have its own say. They are having uh, dialogue after dialogue, and uh, uh, they are coming up with the joint statements. Also, if you uh, look carefully at the joint statements. Uh, these are simply the premises of the next uh, dialogue that we, they will be having. So uh, I don't see uh, the question is uh, very apt, uh, and uh, there are no specific uh, uh, 
uh, issues uh, that are dealt, all those uh, general issues that will be there. Uh, but of course, there will be uh, the sympathetic uh, terms in terms of uh, the current uh, uh, ruler uh, by by Iran. And of course, uh, once the joint statement happens, then uh, the, the foreign ministries of the respective countries will be commenting uh, on that. And uh, there will be a sympathetic uh, treatment to uh, the, the current ruler, uh, Bashar al-Assad, uh, by, by Russia as well as uh, as well as Iran. Uh, but uh, uh, Turkey would not, uh, you know, uh, be be on the same page. So, uh, uh, what exactly is happening uh, for for uh, Russia? It has provided a kind of, uh, uh, you know, uh, experiment uh, uh, laboratory, uh, and it has been uh, utilizing it uh, fully. Uh, uh, Iran has been spending a lot of uh, a lot of energy on this uh, because. Uh, of the, the crucial importance of it uh, that it uh, uh, associates. Uh, but uh, if you see uh, uh, in terms of Iran and, and uh, because Russia is an outside power and the military aspect is more important for it. But in terms of uh, uh, the Turkey for it, uh, the mostly is territorial integrity and the Kurdish question and the refugee flow or the division of Syria in terms of that. Uh, those aspects, it has been, uh, again, uh, just having talks. There are no concrete, uh, concrete, concrete resolution. Uh, uh, what they are together uh, attempting is that no outside power comes up. I mean, that has that is something that they have ensured, that there will be just three countries. Uh, the way uh, Iran and Russia have been ensuring Caspian Sea, that it will be just Russia and Iran and all the three Central Asian countries or other countries will not come in. Again, the negative approach. Uh, so, but in terms of positivity, uh, we don't see something. But when you compare uh, the stakes of the two countries, uh, Turkey uh, and Iran, Iran uh, sort of uh, provides a higher stake to the, uh, it actually considers it as, you know, its own, uh, you know, province, uh, Syria. <laughs> so, uh, so uh, for it, it's a very important land bridge uh, to counter, uh, you know, Israel. So for uh, the way for Israel, uh, there are some existential issues. For Iran, also there are some existential issues, and it, it goes goes in that uh, domain. So, uh, uh, very sorry to uh, not give any positive note on this, uh, but uh, again, I, as I said that uh, in the beginning, that uh, the main emphasis of their cooperation uh, came or the uh, it came into highlight because of the Astana or Nur Sultan, whatever uh, this this uh, process. But again, their behavior is also exemplified, illustrated uh, by the activities that they come in. Uh, so far, there is nothing uh, in any of these joint statements that can be alluded to uh, uh, any solution uh, to this problem. Uh, we see that Bashar al-Assad has been acting the way he has been. He's been visiting Iran and he's been having uh, like running his own government, but he has a very limited territory where he, he has control and the other powers are not there. So. Uh, 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 so far, uh, no breakthrough, but maybe uh, when the other uh, hotspots come up, maybe uh, there will be some breakthrough. Um, I think part of the reason why there's no breakthrough and the problem that Asif uh, mentioned uh, is a bigger problem because diplomacy is, is in such cases is a supplement to the actual power play on the ground and it's still going on. There's what matters is how much military power you have, how much room you have on the ground. And diplomacy then becomes um, another front, um, but it is not the only front. So even if uh, these leaders or the you know, um, 
foreign ministers agree on something, um, then uh, Assad on the ground may act in a way that would, you know, um, in a way betray or uh, change the entire uh, game. And that we, we've seen that uh, uh, interplay between what is going on in Astana and the calmer negotiations and uh, the more hot sort of back and forth uh, on the ground. But there has been some uh, developments that are uh, noteworthy. For example, uh, the it was thanks to the really heightened traffic uh, the communication uh, among the three leaders that prevented, for example, a, a total disaster in Idlib uh, in what was uh, 2008, seven. Um, there, there were moments when uh, what has been agreed in, in Astana could stop, say, for example, Bashar Assad uh, from uh, you know, intervening uh, in, in Idlib they have agreed to build observation points and that they uh, created this zone, you know, uh, this line of defense and uh, an observation around Idlib, uh, again, to prevent humanitarian crisis. And there have been some actions from uh, Russian side and the Iranian side and the Bashar Assad, uh, maybe to uh, undercut it, uh, etc. But then um, Turkey is really uh, overall the net loser, I think, of, of, uh, uh, of the Syrian uh, war in some way, so it couldn't respond. So the, there's no breakthrough, but there are a lot of um, um, gains uh, on the ground or a lot of uh, um, moments when uh, you could see that having the Astana platform and the ongoing dialogue between the three countries uh, prevent uh, total disasters. Um, but perhaps even more than that, there has been you know, discussion for reconstruction in Syria, and there has been uh, very solid developments toward um, a constitution, you know, uh, you know they, they built the constitution writing uh, for uh, post-conflict Syria. Of course, they didn't really um, their fruit, uh, but I think these will be the basis or the actors that have been involved in uh, in these discussions will, will continue to play a role in, in the construction of Syria. And who knows, uh, in the not so far future, Turkey may uh, change its position and uh, start you know, talking to Bashar Assad and we may see a completely different uh, picture then. The reason I say this is because Erdogan uh, we all thought that Erdogan would never talk to Sisi or would never um, uh, develop ties with uh, post-Sisi Egypt. It has changed. Uh, Erdogan is in talks with Israel. It, most important of all, Erdogan uh, has been uh, talking to UAE leadership too. Uh, the two um, countries had really had a falling out uh, since the uh, coup attempt, failed coup attempt in, in Turkey. Uh, even that is changing. So Turkey uh, being completely just uh, limited to Iran and Russia uh, in its regional aspirations is not the case anymore. Uh, so all of, all of these uh, other developments will have an impact uh, on what is going on in Syria. And that's what I wanna uh, maybe wrap up by emphasizing that now 
whether it's Iran, Turkey, or Russia, they are involved or implicated in so many crises in so many countries all at once that when they come to the negotiation table on one issue, they use other issues as a bargaining chip. Or they can, you know, so you, you, a lot of what is going on in one case, one crisis or one country depends on all these other um, conflicts uh, uh, going on at the same time. So it's, it's very hard to predict uh, the geopolitical developments uh, in the region for that very reason. Uh, thank you. I think now we might have the, uh, just time for one quick question. And this quick question comes from Kirk D'Souza who's asking about how uh, Turkey and Iran have managed their, uh, the, the, the refugee population that has been pouring into these places, uh, both from Afghanistan as well as Syria. And what, what is the political impact that this has been having on in both uh, Iran and Turkey? Because in Europe, we know that the refugee population coming in led to Islamophobia and sort of rise of right-wing movement. But here we have Muslim states. What is like? What does the shift in politics look like when refugees come into these places? Uh, we have little time, so I would ask both of you for a little brevity. Thank you. Uh, I would very much like to hear the answer from Sarkhan. It's really, I mean, very deep into it. The Sarkhan, please. Uh, a quick answer. Answer that. Um, there's clearly uh, it. It gives impetus to uh, the nationalist movement in Turkey. Um, and the opposition in general, uh, and it is, a, uh, I guess, a, again, a soft underbelly of, of the uh, current government uh, that it doesn't, it couldn't really manage the refugee situation. It has been going on since the uh, Syrians coming in, but it has been certainly augmented with the Afghan refugees or the you know videos and uh, pictures of them coming uh, easily. Uh, passing through the Iran-Turkey border uh, has really an, incited the public debates and uh, you can see the implications of it on the you know, major streets of, on the urban landscape of Istanbul. Uh, so there's no running away from uh, the refugee crisis having impact on the country. Um, but I would say it's, uh, it constitutes a huge part of the uh, current public debate in Turkey. So it will have uh, political implications, uh, possibly a rise in uh, secular nationalist uh, movements in Turkey. Thank you so much uh, to both of you. Unfortunately, we're running out of time. The conversation could have gone for much longer, but we have to end soon. Uh, so thank you so much both to Asif and to Sirkan for engaging with us today. Thank you to the audience for joining in and to the MEI events team for putting this, making this all possible. In the end, I wanna make a shout out for our upcoming event this Wednesday at 4 uh, p.m. Uh, there will be a talk on uh, Islamic finance. So if anyone is interested or, you know, I highly encourage everyone to sign in, the positions are filling up fast. So please do sign in and join us next Wednesday at 4 p.m. Thank you everyone for joining us today. That'll be all for today. Goodbye. Yeah.